Welcome to the FinTech One-on-One podcast. This is Peter Renton, chairman and co-founder of FinTech Nexus. I've been doing this show since 2013, which makes this the longest-running one-on-one interview show in all of FinTech. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. Before we get started, I want to remind you about our comprehensive news service. Fintech Nexus News not only covers the biggest fintech news stories, our daily newsletter delivers the most important fintech stories into your inbox every morning with special commentary on the top story of the day. Stay on top of fintech news by subscribing at news.fintechnexus.com slash subscribe. Today on the show, I'm delighted to welcome Luke Voyles. He is the CEO of Pipe, a position he's held for about a year now. Now, Pipe is a super interesting company. They call themselves the modern capital platform, and they're all about getting working capital into the hands of small business. And the way they do that is pretty unique, and we obviously delve into the mechanics of how everything works in some depth. Uh, We talk also about how Vertical SaaS is just such a uh, an important piece of the puzzle here because of the of the data and the intelligence that these uh, vertical companies provide. Um, we also talk about underwriting and how they're able to to do this incredibly quickly and easily. Pre approvals right embedded on on these SaaS companies' websites. We talk about uh, Section 1071 of Dodd-Frank. We talk about capital markets and uh, why we haven't solved the small business lending problem yet. It was a fascinating discussion. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Luke. Thanks, Peter. We'll be happy to be here. Okay. So let's get started by um, giving the listeners some background you've been you've been at some big names uh, in fintech in recent years so why don't you give us some of the highlights of your career to date yeah um I've been at pipe for about a year but prior to pipe I led square banking um, so that was the square loans product uh, square checking and debit card savings and instant transfer and we were in four geographies so that was a, a pretty big kind of global banking like business we actually owned a bank uh in the us and ilc um that was a pretty interesting experience uh, about learning about product velocity right square is really good at building new stuff before that so i was only at square for 18 months but so before that i was at intuit um i led the quickbooks capital team so we built QuickBooks Capital from nothing to two billion in loans. We made it a hundred million revenue business, and like having access to the customers and the data on both of those is is the lesson I think. But great experience in leadership and mission based and purpose based uh, leadership, and in focus on customers. But into into it was always so good about understanding the the minute pain points of the customers and helping solve them. Prior to that, I was at I was an investor, so the credit investor. I was at Six Street Partners, which was part of TPG Capital at the time. Um, we were doing, we were just buying a bunch of bad loans from banks um, after the crisis for the most part. So I spent almost a decade doing that, um, all kinds of credit. So it's consumer, small business, asset backed, resi, real estate, everything you can imagine. I was a credit guy for half my career. I've been a tech guy, I guess, for the, for the latter half. Right, right. So what was it that uh, attracted you to the position of Pipe? Obviously, you had, a, you had a good gig at Square Banking. What was it that made you jump over to Pipe? I think there's just a few things. Like one, 
that you take a step back and think about like the places you've been where you're super excited to go to work every day. And so for me, it became clear, like after I was done with private equity and went to into it, how important purpose actually is. Like having a real purpose of like helping small business customers or helping consumers matters a ton. And so the purpose is a core focus for me. So I, I drank the Kool-Aid and into it on that. It, just, it makes you, it makes like Brad Smith was an amazing leader. Like everybody was excited to hear their customer stories and see everything we're doing to help people. I want, I, I, I live for that. And so finding something that I can help mold and make, make into something like that was one thing. Um, the other was like, I was computer science undergrad. Like I always wanted to do like startup-y type stuff, but I graduated right after the tech bubble burst. Right. And ended up on this long kind of like grad school, then credit career that was a major detour from like building stuff and getting to tinker and create stuff. So the other thing Pipe did is like, I get to feel like a founder. Um, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. The last thing is it was an unbelievably unique situation for three founders to raise 300 plus million dollars in equity to go after an idea, like a big idea. And for me to come in with the right background and skill set to help actually achieve those dreams was sort of a bullseye match, I think. And so like all of those things coming together were enough to pull me away from Square to say, you know what, I'm going to go give it a shot. Like, let's go build this. And so to be honest, you were, you were coming into a situation that wasn't easy, right? Um, you know, the founders had left and there was some negative press. What did you do in the early, in those early days and weeks to really gain the confidence of the, of the pipe team? I mean, I think there's one thing that stands out above all others. And I've heard differing things from different people about whether you should do stuff like this or not, or spend the time to do stuff like this. But for me, it's obvious. Yes. I spent weeks meeting every single employee of pipe, like all 85 employees at the time. I had four slots a day, 30 minutes each where I would go. And I would just ask simple questions like, like what is pipe doing well and we should keep doing uh, and then the other question was well what is pipe not doing well and we should probably stop or fix and i started with the engineering team um, you get through the entire team and you know everything about what has happened what's going on in the business what we're good at what we need help with and like how to start to think about put, putting the pieces together to, to turn it into a high product velocity machine to go build the stuff that we know we need to build that's one piece of it the other piece of doing that is we're fully remote right we have a WeWork office in San Francisco that seats 10 and has a conference room. We have another one in New York that seats 10 and has a conference room. We have a bigger office um, in Atlanta where we have sales and customer success and some other folks that come in a lot. But it's really, really hard to lead a, a high-performing culture in a fully remote way. And so me sitting down, spending the time to meet every single employee of Pipe starts to build the trust, starts to build the human connections you need as a basic baseline to like rejuvenate and, and excite a team to go build something. I do okay at selling a vision and getting excited about a vision. And so I like, told every single employee, like, one-on-one -on -one, like what we're going to go do with this and it, it make it goes a long way to like look for me to learn a ton and for every employee to like learn who i am and what i care about and where we're headed and that was the best thing i could ever have done and i would highly recommend it to anyone else that's coming into an organization of a size like this where you can do it um even if even if it's a larger organization like do several layers of leadership on down and even like a random sampling of some of the ICs too just to make sure you have a grounding for what's going on in the company that you're you're working with right remember we bumped into each other at Las Vegas airport and uh yeah yeah I, mean, I think you were either yeah I think you were in the middle of it still because yeah. I thought that was just such a sort of 
it's a great thing to do, as you can see, but you've got a lot of a lot of pressures on your time when you're when you're just coming into a new role. You've really you got to get up to speed super quickly on everything, right? That was the fastest way to do it. Like you talk to 10 engineers in a row, you know everything that's happening in that functional unit and what's going on. It's just, it's powerful, right? It makes a massive difference. Okay. So then now it's been almost a year since you've been in this role now. What have you actually changed and, and how do you describe Pipe today? Let's start with the original vision of the founders and just describe. Okay. So they were the what they sold the VC investors and raised tons of money on was creating a new asset class where SaaS software recurring businesses could just sell their future revenues on an exchange, right? And make a whole new asset class. Um, I think the fundamental shift is that we've actually expanded the TAM. Like we make the idea bigger. Um, we go from just SaaS software recurring, which is only 180 billion in TAM. And you go to all money in, you go to all digital credit card, all ACH, all RTP, all, all payments coming in to, to small, like through small business software that takes the TAM from 180 to multiple trillions, right? You can go after any type of money and not just the SaaS recurring revenue. That's one piece. I think the other big shift is exchanges are really, really hard. Like you have to build both sides. Um, it's like Uber and, and Airbnb did it. And the founding stories are amazing. The focus required and the execution required is just narrowing and narrowing and narrowing the problem. For me, the narrowest approach is to just not be an exchange, be a market maker, right? So you go from taking a small fee on an exchange to taking a much larger fee because you're taking the risk and you can still unload the risk into the capital markets as the market maker instead of just an exchange. And so two things, really, you you expand the idea for money in, you shift from like, I don't know, 25, 30 basis point exchange fee to six to 10 points of, um, of a market maker type fee. And so it's just a bigger opportunity that way. And it's just focusing the team, like narrowly laser focusing the team to go build that basically. And so like, that's, that's the basic shift. It's, I guess the last, one last piece I wanted to mention here, I think is, like the customer acquisition, we have they had they spent we spent a bunch of money on building the brand of Pipe, which is which is a great investment over time. But the, when you do like direct businesses in the risk risk space, it's really hard to make the unit economics work if you're going direct to customer and spending money on digital marketing. And so we've shifted to a B to B to B acquisition setup. So our actual our marketing targets and our biz dev targets are the platforms, are the larger payfacts that are that already have hundreds of thousands of small business customers that they're accepting payments for and they're solving problems for. So we go sign one partner, we share back a, a big chunk of our, our revenue with them that goes straight to EBITDA for them. And we then in turn get access to their entire customer base and can white label the offering in a way that makes it feel like that same brand for the underlying small business customer. So that's it. So expand the TAM, change the unit economics with being a market maker and changing the customer acquisition strategy. But it's still it's still giving access to capital to small businesses who need it. The ultimate underlying pain point is the same. It's it's getting access to capital. And it's just a bigger version of that that we're going to go attack. Right. So then how does your actual product work when maybe you could just take us through an example like you have these partners, they bring in all these small businesses. Small business says, yes, I need working capital. What are the terms of the deal? What does the product look like? Yeah, I think the with all the experience I've had at different places, the, the only revenue-based financing product I've ever seen that actually works at scale is what Square Capital does, Stripe Capital, 
PayPal Working Capital, and some of the other bigger verticals are doing it on their own now too. It's a merchant finance product where you're in the flow of the money. The only way you can open up access to all of these tiny sole props and micro merchants is to actually get into the flow. So I'll use a coffee shop as a simple example. A coffee shop using software to run their business sells a thousand coffees a day. Um, you, you look at six months of history on that coffee shop and can very accurately looking only at that one data element, like what is the transaction history on credit cards and like swiped in person at that one store, you can predict what the next 12 months of credit card revenue will be very accurately. You can lend 10 to 15% against that future. If they're going to make a million dollars next year, you can lend them or advance them $100,000 and they pay you back the $100,000 plus a fee and you get paid back first in line. So it becomes for the business, they don't have to think about repaying the loan. It's an automatic product. If they have a slow month, they pay you less. You're just holding some of every day's transaction to pay back the loan over time. And if we've built it as a multi-draw line of credit product where the customer can draw down however much they want. If they qualify for 100,000, they can take 10, they can take five, and you just modify the hold rate um, of money coming in to adjust the amount of payments each month. And so it's very much merchant finance, almost the same type of product as PayPal working capital, Stripe capital, Square capital. It's a simple way to think about it. But there's lots of different types of organizations that have small businesses. I mean, are you, are you really going after primarily Payfax and software companies, or, or are you doing like associations? How, what, what's your sort of go-to-market strategy? I think the way to think about the, so think about the underlying small businesses over here. I wish I had a whiteboard. It's more fun with a whiteboard. <laughs> but think about the underlying small businesses over here. There's like 33 million small businesses in the United States. 27 million of them are sole props. Like they don't have any employees. They're very small. Our product can serve 90% of those 33 million businesses because we target businesses with 100,000 is on the minimum side of revenue all the way up to 5 million. So loan sizes call it 10,000 to 500,000. That is 90% of the businesses in the US. So we are going after and targeting and trying to help these small businesses get access to capital, basically all of them. The approach to going to acquire them, as I said, B2B2B, there's several buckets I think about. The, the best bucket for us is those that have money in offering. So think about it as money in, money out, or like horizontal services, right? So money in means that it's a soft vertical software that actually processes credit cards um, and puts money into a, a bank account for the small business. With that, we're able to get to pre-approvals, right? Or pre-qualified offers before the customer ever sees anything. And so the platform can send us 100,000 unique identifiers with literally 12 data points. Like we only need aggregate monthly transaction volume for the last six months, that's six data points, and count of transaction for each of the last six months. So with unique identifier and 12 data points, we can get to a pre-qualified offer because the product is so good. And we can talk more about this in a minute, but the data that you're using is so perfectly tied to the risk you're taking that those small number of data points allows you um, to get to pre-qualified offer. And so, but in order to get to that perfect frictionless experience where you start with pre-approved offer, like when the customer logs into the software, it pops up and says, hey, you're pre-approved for $50,000. Like people notice and they start to come and look. Or when you go to your payments dashboard um, and you see, that you have a, a pre-approved offer that's just there. It's a security blanket. You can draw it in as much as you want, whenever you want. It starts to become relevant for you. And you, you'll go first to that to draw it down because you know it only takes a click or two. 
because of the deeply embedded experience and the fact that we're partnering with the money in Payfax to get those data elements, we're able to make it a perfectly seamless experience. When you go beyond the money in, you can go to money out, but there's not enough data to get the pre-approval in money out. And so the, the, the experience becomes more like what the old, like older versions of, of alternative lending look like, where you don't have as much information on the business and you have to ask for more. And it's not as good as the flow. But we'll start with the payback money inside. We'll then expand our um, partnership targets to like referrals. Like Fundera and Lendio have amazing leads coming in. I led the marketplace at QuickBooks, right? We had Fundbox and Bluevine and Funding Circle making loans to the small business customers and within QuickBooks because those were good customers and we were able to get enough data to try to get to an approval there. But that's that's one step down from what we have at Pipe. It's just, a it, you can't get to pre-qualified until you ask for more information. So the experience is just not as good, but there's still access to business that way. Then there's the horizontal, pro, like there's other, other like the banks are another option, right? The banks don't know how to serve products to the small businesses that have less than 25 million in revenue in many <laughs> cases. It's crazy. And so there's an opportunity for Pipe to partner with the banks as well to say, you know what, like, let us see the bank data. We can show you what our pre-approved offers would look like for your population. And if, if they come in and they, they like that offer, we can then ask for more data and then upsell them to the, the line of credit at Wells Fargo, for example, instead of this more expensive product. So like, there's a path forward for this business to go partner with all types of businesses that serve all like all types of big Bs that serve the little Bs on the money inside, the money outside, um, and the horizontal services side. So it's just the the payback connection point allows for the, like a, a magical experience, and that's where we're starting. Because when you're underwriting, as you say, it's truly pre-approved, right? It's just like one or two clicks, and the and the money is there. First click is I'm interested, like pre-approved offer. I'm interested. Second click is I'd like to apply, and I agree to have the partner share the data with Pipe. That automates the application. Right. And then we send back the fully like like fully approved offer and it's just one more click to come through. It's like it's not as perfect as three, but like it's pretty close to three clicks, right? But so you can only do that when you say when you have access to the payment in. So you obviously have a different flow when you're working with with a bank or yes. I imagine like you have to do a more well traditional, shall we say, underwriting process where you're pulling bank data, you're probably pulling QuickBooks data and stuff like that. Is that like what's your underwriting? process look like when you don't have that that magical money in data you need to get it is the answer <laughs> you got to get the magical money in data so you ask right. the customer um right now we have our like you can go to pipes website and apply for a loan you have to link your bank account for us to mainly for fraud checks and then you have to link your payments account and so many of the big payments providers have payments apis where we can pull that transaction data Right. right. So you can select who your payments provider is. You can then connect that data. We can then do the underwrite. You can't like we did it. We did a cash flow based model at Intuit and it works. Like you get to a debt service coverage ratio. You have to understand all of the expenses. So mm -hmm. like we're, we live in a world at pipe where you don't have to understand the expenses because you're getting paid back before the expenses and can actually like underwrite based on that single component of revenue. Like Square only saw 40% of the revenue of the customers. Like many small business, like restaurants would be selling on DoorDash. Like they're taking credit cards through DoorDash, right? Like half their revenue would come from somewhere else. And so you're you're so narrowly tied to it. Like you, you have to get access to those data points. It's just a different product if you start to underwrite expenses. And the data lift is dramatically higher. Like we had 26 billion transactions that into it on the accounting side and the bank side, but it took all of that to figure out 
with like 85% accuracy, what the heck was going on in the PL of that business. And you could do a cash flow based product, but it cannot go as far down the risk spectrum as the, the merchant finance product can. And so it's like, you got to get the data. You need the transaction history because that's the data that you're underwriting against. What if you don't have the, like you, you don't get the first money in, like you're not, you're working with a bank who has small businesses that might be processing with Square and DoorDash, right? So you're not going to be part of that payments flow. Explain to me how, how you work with that. So we're sort of a neobank in the background. Like I hate, like the neobanks aren't working for small business because they monetize with debit interchange. They cannot figure out lending. They cannot acquire a customer. And they're trying to take the primary spend checking account. And it doesn't work. You just can't do it. Like people that had a checking account already would not take score checking. It just doesn't happen. And so our F, we have an FBO layer. We have a bank partner and a VAS layer, bulletproof setup, by the way, with Alloy. Um, and the bank can look over our shoulder to, live at every underwrite we're doing to understand that we're applying the BSA policy the right way, by the way. I'm very much making sure we're bulletproof from a compliance perspective mm-hmm. in that sense, but like multiple backups. That's a whole different conversation we can have. But the way to think about it is payments is done. If you're plugging into the PayFAC partner, payments is done. They're ready to release the money into the customer's underlying Bank of America account. Um, we simply need the permission of the business owner that took the loan to switch the deposit account to our FBO layer. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then we take our payment and that's it. And then the rest of the money goes to the account. And so instead of messing up, asking for split payment or messing up reporting, payments is finished. Um, and there's reporting there that the accountant can look at based on what happened on the payment side. And then it drops into a like intraday, like for 10 minutes, if that, like five minutes sometimes into the FBO layer, we can hold our payment and do the money sweep we need and then give the rest of the money to the customer. So that gets us into the flow to have the same risk set up actually as a Square, a Stripe or a PayPal has, because it's just a layer, an intermediary layer that lets you do that. But the money still goes to the primary spend account, which means that there's no, it takes the friction out of the bank part. Right, right. And they're not actually paying back anything. It's just coming out of their out of their deposit that was about to hit their account. Right. And like on the payback side, that works. Like if you if you start if you want to add, like say it's a restaurant and you're you're getting one component, you could you could literally tell them, hey, you know what? If you if you link your DoorDash account here too and change the deposit account, we'll give you another twenty five thousand. So it's also a place for us to take like more share of wallet for the first time. None of these platforms can can see the full share of wallet or had a benefit that was big enough to get the full share of wallet before. And this one will do it. You wrote an article, a guest post for us uh, just last month in January, and actually ended up being one of the most popular articles of the month. Oh, really? I didn't know um, that. Yeah. It's, uh, and you're talking about how vertical SaaS companies are the new community banks. Can you just sort of elaborate on that? And what what did you mean there? It's kind of a controversial headline, I guess, from a, from a community. <laughs> oh, why it's got a lot of clicks. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, I mean, I think the answer is, and, and like I spoke about this on like a, as a, a keynote one time too, but fundamentally, like business owners need to have their problem solved, right? They used to go into the bank branch to deposit checks. They used to go and try to get money for the till for the next day. And they were constantly coming in a couple of times a week. To, to like do their money stuff. And that was the chance that the community banks could actually cross sell um, and say, hey, you also qualify for a loan or hey, let's talk about the other needs you have on the insurance side. The reality is business owners do not go to the bank branches anymore. Um, they're going into the software. 
right? Like, and the, the initially that software was like the horizontal software, like QuickBooks, right? Or Square. I would argue that Square is a horizontal for retail, right? And retail, like 10% of retailers in the US that are physical use Square terminals. That was more of a horizontal retail play to accept credit cards. And so that was the first shift. And now the shift is getting even more dramatic, right? You have Toast. Like Toast is a great example. Most people know it because you're paying with your card at the restaurant on their device that says Toast on it when the restaurant is, is taking the check, right? And even taking your order, like they're typing it into the Toast terminal. Like Toast is able to solve the end-to-end -end pain points of the restaurant owner in a way that QuickBooks and Square, like Square is trying to catch up on the restaurant side, but the way that QuickBooks definitely couldn't because they're so horizontally focused. They're thinking about nail salons and landscapers in the same way um, from a customer pain point perspective, where Toast is thinking about the restaurant. And then let's take it even a step further. You now Slice. Right. Slice is taking market share from Toast on pizza shops, like pizza joints, to solve the very specific problems of a pizza shop owner using this software. Just by word of mouth, they start to take market share because they're they're doing a better job of solving the pain points of the small business. If you think about nail salons and hair salons, you have businesses like Boulevard and Bagaro that are doing great. Like Boulevard started as just is just a, a better appointment software to help fill the seats and then they added payments and they have more stuff coming you go to like you see mind body and explore that do yoga studios and gyms and daycares and service-based businesses the future of SaaS software are these verticalized offerings that like in a really i'll just tie it back like a, in a scott cook style like focused on the customer pain point like solving the end-to-end -end pain points of those verticalized businesses. And if you're the place that the business owner can go to do everything, they don't need to take five disparate tools to connect them together. If you can do that and focus on those pain points, then you can then partner with Pipe to offer everything else, all of the embedded financial services, starting with capital. The biggest pain point for the business is access to capital. Pipe can come in and white label and partner with any of these vertical businesses that are payments processors, many of them are Payfax. To, to offer the to offer the product. And so it's just where like where the business owner is going to complete tasks, I think is the difference. They don't go to the banks anymore. They go into the software and that's where the financial services have to go. Yeah. I want to switch gears. I want to talk um regulatory for a second and just ask you about section 1071, which is a part Dodd-Frank that requires lenders to maintain and compile the date some data on um, minority-owned businesses and um, that sort of thing. So what are your thoughts on that and how how are you kind of bringing that into your flow? I like I actually think it's a good thing, right? So like, let me just run through the purpose and mission of some of the places I've been. Like Intuit was to power prosperity for small businesses and consumers around the world. Square was to make financial services fair, accessible, and inclusive. Pipe is to empower financial freedom for business owners through open, accessible, and unbiased financial products, like enabling enabling them to grow on their terms. So fundamentally, all of these businesses have a solid purpose to go help these small businesses get access to fair and unbiased capital um, so they can grow their business, right? 1071 is fundamentally just going to be transparency to make sure that you can see how fair and accessible and like, your, your products are. The banks won't look great. And that's why they're pushing back because they have historical like reliance on things like FICO score that actually has a bunch of inherent bias within it. And I've seen fair lending reviews that said, hey, you actually have some bias, but it's because you use FICO and that's for a risk reason and it's okay. And the whole, the whole like chicken and egg of having a loan to get a score and needing a score to get a loan goes away when you have a product like Pipes because we don't pull FICO. We don't pull bank data. We don't pull 
any commercial scores, like you only need the transaction data that makes it the most unbiased product by definition, because the business speaks for itself. A thousand coffee sales a day for six months will tell you what the next 12 months are going to be. Nothing else matters, right? It makes it the most unbiased product you can imagine. And yes, 1071 will add a bit of friction because you have to collect some of the data. But if everybody's collecting it in a similar way, then it's, it's similar like friction. But still, I, I think it actually will show how, how much fintechs are helping like business owners and sole props get access to capital across the board. So I'm I'm a fan, actually. Right. Well, let's talk about the other side of that uh, equation there and the capital itself. I mean, you've got a lot of experience in this space, but how is Pipe accessing the capital to lend to uh, to all of their all of the customers? So um, I'll I'll tell a story on this one to make it a little more powerful, I guess. But so I'm an advisor to Nike Partners, and mm-hmm. that's Hans Morris's fund. He's one of the one of the few VCs that really understands risk and banking and credit. And one of the things he said, like, really stuck it in my in my head. And it was basically was he said he's never going to invest in another lending business unless it can actually get to a balance sheet light setup where you can unload all of the risk and not stack the balance sheet and effectively become a bank. And so in order to get to a place where you can sell the risk, you have to have the optimal perfect product. And so when, when you think about the customers that we have to serve at Pipe, there's three big buckets. The underlying small business is the main customer. They're getting a multi-draw line of credit. It feels like a security blanket. They don't even have to think about paying it back. Like you solve their problem. The channel partner gets a super easy, frictionless um, like connection and like less than a week can turn on an embedded product. Um, and then the capital markets, in order to make advances or make loans, you have to have money. Capital markets have to be okay with the risk. And they love the merchant finance risk. They, they'll buy whole loans all day long on the risk that I just talked about, where you use the data to underwrite the next 12 months, and you can get into the flow of money and get paid back in a priority position ahead of the expenses. Um, That risk they'll buy all day long. And so the ultimate goal for us is to build six months of history to get to a place where we have enough history that says, you know what, look, these curves all match the same curves you're seeing from Stripe and Square and PayPal. You can buy our whole loans too. And there are participations, however we structure them, ignore the semantics. Um, and so that's one piece. Like, so the goal is to get to that point where you can literally with $4 million of the balance sheet, you can do a billion dollars a year in volume because you can turn it every single day, like right. whatever, every single business day. And so you can just flip it and go. And that, that gives you unlimited scale from, from a lending perspective or from an advanced perspective, because you don't actually have to balance sheet any of the risk or you don't have to use your equity to go do deploy. Like one of my biggest pet peeves, and I'll just say it is when lenders announce, a $500 million raise, no, I hate that too. <laughs> $5 million of equity and an unsecured line for $495 million, or like a forward flow that's never going to get filled up. And so it's, it's just nonsense. And so, but the reality of those businesses is those advance rates are probably 70 or 80, and they got to put 30 cents on the dollar of equity into every loan they make. And that's just not scalable, mm-hmm. right? And so we have a bit of a chicken and egg. We have capital to hold a bunch on balance sheet out of the gate. Um, and it'll be our kind of baseline over time. We'll, we'll fill that up and then we'll start selling whole loans uh, on an ongoing basis. So we'll have some protection as well. You want to have a, a warehouse facility just to handle the ups and downs in the market. There's like some real lessons from even 10 years ago where some consumer lenders like had whole loan sales turned off and they didn't have a warehouse and they had to almost shut down their business. And so there's a real 
um, there's a real, I don't know, like it, it's, it's a diversification and safety thing for the balance sheet side, for the asset side of the balance sheet to have uh, and make sure you can like handle any situation. And so we'll have some balance sheet, but mostly we'll be hold on sales. Right, right. Okay, so you and I met, I think it was about 2016, not long after you started at Intuit. And so you've been around this this space now for quite some time attacking this problem. And you know, we still see that small businesses don't have access to capital. Any the survey's done all the time with so many small businesses don't have access to what they need. And, you know, fintech has really been attacking this for more than a decade. You've been doing this for eight years. Why haven't we solved this problem yet? There's several things. And so one is I don't think the right tech teams have attacked it yet. Right. You have to have like real time transaction payments, quality technology teams. Like we have X Stripe and Plaid engineers on our team. You have to have that level of tech, the right designers, the right, the right product teams to go make stuff happen fast and the right org setup to actually have product velocity. So you see a lot of alt lenders that say they're tech. But they're just not right. Like they don't have APIs. They don't have Stripe quality APIs. They have something that's okay, but doesn't really work. And they really can't. They really can't do the stuff automatically like they claim. They have, and like there's consumer. I'm not going to say any names, but there's consumer lenders that famously had a hundred people in the back office trying to do loan servicing because there was too many edge cases, for example, right? And so at Pipe, we built it in a way to actually have true scale using stuff off the shelf, like loan servicing. Like, Why would we build loan servicing if there's modules you can get off the shelf? Why would we do KYC orchestration layer if you can get Alloy to go do that for you, right? And link to all the data you need and help you change the rules. And so I think that we're getting to a place in tech now where there's, some of the modules are good enough to build entirely at scale business on. Um, the tech teams are getting good enough and attacking those problems. Like that's one piece of it. I think the other piece is just what I talked about before, the data and the experience. You cannot get to a pre-approved, like think about the old school way to do it. The Capital One sending a pre-approved offer via direct mail to the customer. That works because it's personalized and it's a pre-approval and they know who you are because you're a consumer and they have your income data. They have your FICO scores. That's all you need for consumer. There is no equivalent on the small business side. It's There's so many different scores. There's so many different industries. It's just a mess. And so... The, I think narrowing the data set and like go back to the, I'll just, I'm going to make an analogy here. Like go back to the Uber and Airbnb stories of like narrowing the problem and figuring out what you can solve. You can narrow it to get to a pre approval if you only lend against like the revenue from one cash flow stream. So once you narrow the problem to just that and then attack it with like with everything you got, that's when it's going to start to work because the data is perfect and that makes then the customer experience perfect for the first time. It's frictionless for the first time, it's pre approval. Click to click to apply, like click to like confirm that this is your information and click here to take the money. And that's it. And then you know how to think about paying it back, right? Like I think we're at an inflection point now where many businesses are shifting to these payments platforms. And that's going to allow the embedded financial products to finally like win the day because they're doing it directly the way that Funding Circle and On Deck and others have done it never really worked because the data was too messy. You had to have too much. And so I think narrowing the problem to that data um, is the piece that makes the most sense. Right, right. This is, keeps coming up in my mind as you've been talking here. So I want to ask this question. You know, you talk about the coffee shop owner, you're getting a piece of uh, credit card revenue that's coming in. But obviously, there's going to be coffee shops that are run really well on a financial basis. And then so there's going to be some that, that are barely breaking even and some that are making, you know, 10% margins or more with the exact same payment stream, right? So how do you kind of reconcile 
you say you don't need the expense side of things, but clearly there is differences in how business owners manage. It's one of the challenges of small businesses. You could have two very identical coffee shops as far as size goes, and the profitability is very different. How do you how do you sort of reconcile that? You have to take the the in of one and shift to the portfolio view, right? When you when you lend to a hundred thousand small businesses and you can see the trends in the revenue where it's going up or it's going down, you can immediately pick it up because you're underwriting real time every single day. And those that are trending in the wrong way, you can put in a higher risk bucket. You can make them pay over a shorter time frame. You can make it like where the like the risk that you're taking from an outstanding balance perspective is just way lower. And then when you look at the portfolio level view, even if you have a hundred thousand small businesses, you'll have sure you'll have a hundred or a thousand that are in the category that you just described, but most of them will not be. And so the portfolio construction allows you to underwrite the entire the entire business space in the U.S. Knowing what the overall trends are, it just works from a portfolio perspective because you have less than three percent losses by vintage and less than ten by like from an annualized perspective. And when you have enough money coming in from a yield perspective, the excess spread just works. And so, right. yes, you're right, but <laughs> the portfolio construction solves that risk, right? That's it. Okay, that's good. That, that makes sense to me. Let's close with sort of, you know, forward kind of looking vision here. I'd love to kind of get your sense. I mean, this is, you know, we, we've talked about, we haven't been able to solve this yet. It sounds like Pipe is really trying to be that difference maker, but so maybe just take us through the vision. You've now been in the job for a year. What is, what's your vision for Pipe for the next five years? The way to think about it is the capital is our wedge. Every business has a wedge. Square's wedge was just accepting credit cards with the phone so the person at the farmer's market could accept a card. Square's wedge is to allow Payfax to solve the biggest pain point for their small business customer, which is access to capital. Um, and frankly, it has one of the higher lifetime values, Right. Taking the risk allows us to take, like, get higher revenue from that product. So capital, number one, will pay the bills, give us unlimited runway. Uh, and number two, and this is critical, it gives us access to the data to, to offer the other products, right? And so once we have, we're in the flow of the data and have access to the data, it opens up opportunities for other stuff. So like, I hate to say it, but you, you look at what the financial services that businesses need are and what the other startups are doing. Like our roadmap is just a mixture of that stuff. Like capital is the wedge. Um, corporate bin card um, as a spend mechanism attached to our line is another one. And then naturally that follows that is expense management or spend management and then bill pay. Um, you start to go like lending against the money in and then starting to solve the money out problem. So if we're partnered with companies like vertical SaaS business to solving all the problems. If they want to offer a, an invoicing product or a bill pay product, they can just literally flip the switch and turn it on because they've already integrated our API, mm -hmm. right? After bill pay, then naturally you think about payroll. Payroll is a challenging one, but my, like the CFO I hired or we hired here um, it ran ran the finance team at Intuit that um, handled payroll. I led the platform behind the payroll business at Intuit. Um, they they paid uh, one like paid 16 million employees or workers on behalf of 1.6 million small businesses, 80% of which have less than 10 employees, fewer than 10. Like it's small and there's not much competition there. So there's a real opportunity. Yes, it's super sticky and you got to convince people to switch like once or twice a year, but that's a very interesting one. Like to solve that problem for the small business uh, makes more sense. Like two or three or four or five employees. We don't want to go 
like ADP owns the biggest and there's some other players in between, but going after the, the micro, like the micro business, the space, here's the example, the space that Brex just walked away from because right. they couldn't make, they couldn't make the unit economics work. They couldn't make enough money or they couldn't acquire customers for cheap enough to make it work. But the way we set it up with B2B2B and with a risk, like a risk engine that can create revenue, it's going to change how that works. And we can offer all of these. So what I just went through is almost every embedded financial service product you might need if you're a small business. And then the whole, like the moonshot for us is a, is an AI sidekick, right? I've watched horizontal businesses and I, I'm, I'm going to say this, but I'll explain why it actually makes sense for us. I've watched these horizontally focused businesses try to make a sidekick that works for a decade and they can't because they treat the business, like the landscapers and the nail salons and the restaurants all the same. The data is all the same. So the, these sidekicks don't add much value, but for basic financial stuff, once you have all of the embedded financial services connected together in the same API and a sidekick that understands nail salons better than anything, right? Like with thousands of nail salons worth of data that can answer any question related to a nail salon, and then it can go pay payroll for you, or it can automatically draw it on the capital line to go to go pay payroll for you if you don't have enough money, tell you when you need to order stuff. It just, it changes the dynamic. And the reason why it makes sense is because the data access, you have to have access to that data. All these other AI startups that are pivoting to it, they're all me too, using off the shelf tools, but have zero access to unique data sets that can actually solve the problems for small businesses. And so for us, once we have the vertical data sets in order to start to train those models and have them actually be able to be the UI or the interface to control all the financial services, that's the moonshot. We'd love to have SaaS, like a SaaS business based on that. Like payroll is a SaaS business too. And you have a bunch of transaction style, like Square-like revenue or Stripe-like revenue that would let us IPO this company and go help more small businesses, right? Like that's the goal. It's, it's okay. everything. Good to see you're not thinking small there, Luke. <laughs> I mean, like we did the hardest thing first. Like lending is the hardest and we executed and built it rapidly and everything else is going to be easy compared to that. Right. Okay. Well, I'll have to leave it there. Luke, it's always great to chat with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks, Peter. I enjoyed it. Well, I hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you so much for listening. Please go ahead and give the show a review on the podcast platform of your choice and go tell your friends and colleagues about it. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening and I'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.